Exodus. Um, we, uh, Brad mentioned Tyler TK, so I've decided to call you. TK and I are going to be working through this thing. Uh, we're going to do it several chapters at a time, though, so um, I want you to brace yourself. We're not every time going to read the entire section of Scripture that we will be uh, working through, but I hope that you will be reading along. Um, so maybe um, after tonight or some point before next week that you'll read chapters one through four. That's what we're going to discuss tonight, uh, and I hope that you'll, you'll follow up by, by reading it and, and diving in deeper. Um, the nature of something like this is that we, we, can't really, uh, we can't really mine the depths of, of these large passages. Next week, Tyler's going to work through five through ten. Um, talk about the plagues, you know. So there's just, there's just so much richness and depth, uh, even to, to what, um, what we find in chapters one through four, um, that I can't possibly uh, dive into. Um, so I hope that you'll do that. Um, and that maybe what we do in these weeks that we meet will give you some handlebars um, and help you to, to read it on your own and, if nothing else, to get a picture or an idea of what the big picture is in these books and how to read um, Old Testament narratives like Exodus. So, um, like I said, we'll be in uh, chapters 1 through 4 tonight. Um, and because this is our first night, I think it's helpful to just have a little, a little background as to uh, the, the function of Exodus in the Bible and in the, uh, the history of God's people. Um, so I, I, I want to preliminarily then, nothing's going to be on the screen, talk about two, uh, two ways of thinking about this book. So first of all, this is a book about history. Um, that may seem obvious to you. I hope it does. But it's a, it's a book about real events that have taken place in real time um, that the Lord orchestrated, that he brought to pass, and then told us what to think about them, right? I mean, that, let's not lose sight of that fact. The Lord has acted in history. He stepped into history uh, and, and created a people for his own glory and then wrote about it. Um, through this book and through the whole, the whole body of Scripture. Um, the Lord has, has shown us what, what took place. Now, we know that Exodus was written through uh, the, the hand, I guess, of Moses. Um, that's the, the, by and large, the um, uh, presumption is that Moses wrote this book. Um, that he, uh, and of course Moses then has firsthand right, testimony to all these things that he talks about. He was there for it, you know. Um, so, so Moses is writing this book, and then he's writing it to the Israelites about their history. Now, um, the, the, I guess the timeline then of this book goes from Egypt, uh, which if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, that's fine. Um, the Israelites have found themselves in Egypt because um, that's where their forefathers had landed at the end of a very large worldwide, for them, famine. Um, and, and so Exodus picks up, they're in Egypt, they are enslaved, and, and the Lord brings them out of Egypt. But I think one thing we often forget um, is, is that, or maybe we just assume, rather, when we read Exodus, is we think that they go from Egypt to the promised land in this one book. But that's not the case, right? They don't get to the promised land until Joshua. 
which is like four books later. (laughs) So where does Exodus take us? What's the focus? If not to get us to the promised land, Exodus, it really hinges on, and literally so, the very middle of the book, it it hinges on Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai is is a really important place. Hopefully it's a name that's familiar to you. That's the place where the Lord hands down the law to his people. It's the place where the Lord communicates with his new nation. Um, that is what the book of Exodus then is about. It's, it, it, it can't cover the entire history of God's people, right? There are other books for that. This book is focused on, in particular, the history, the formation, the foundations of Israel, God's people, all right? Now, it's not enough, though, just to talk about the, the fact that this is a book of history. There's also a history of this book. There, there's a context in which this book came about, and I think that's helpful for us to interpret it as well, all right? So, so Exodus, and some of this may sound obvious, but if you think about it, it's really important to make sure we know this. Exodus wasn't written during the Exodus, right? It didn't, it, Moses wasn't writing it down on, on the way. No, Exodus is written after the fact. It's written from a perspective that we've come out of Egypt. Likewise, it's, it's not written from the perspective of we are already in the promised land, necessarily. Exodus is, is kind of caught in the middle here. It's, it's a book that, that remembers the past, but is also pointing ahead to the future of God's people, as they prepare to enter, enter into their inheritance. Now, why would that matter for them? Why, why would this book then have such significance? Right? Well, it, it shows them the foundation of their nation. And, and, it, and it, it explains to them the origins of how they came to be and how the Lord brought them out of oppression with a view toward what they need to be and how they ought to be in the future, in the promised land. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's important to remember as we read this. This isn't a manual for how to escape oppression, though it certainly talks about that. Uh, but, but likewise, this, this has a future in sight. There's a, there's a, a promised inheritance that the Israelites are awaiting. And this book reminds them of very key foundational principles for how their people are to live, not just escaping Egypt, but going into the promised land. So this book is really about the terms of Israel's salvation, how they were saved, and then from there, what they should remember and bear in mind as they enter Canaan. And and I hope that as we scale it out a little bit and as we think about it in those terms, you'll start to see very quickly how this has very direct implications for the Christian life, right? Uh, This is a book about salvation and what to do with it. It's a book about the foundations of how did we get here and where do we go from here? And the Christian life is all about that, right? We, We are caught in between salvation, right, from the oppression of death, sin, and the devil, and we are looking ahead toward our future inheritance. And in the meantime, we are called to live a certain way. And what is that? What does that look like? Um, Exodus, believe it or not, has very practical implications for the Christian life, uh, not just the life of nomadic Israelites, all right? So 
So let's, let's get into it. We're looking at chapters 1 through 4. Uh, and, and these chapters are probably the chapters you're most familiar with in this book because this is where you start and you work through it. And then somewhere around chapter 5 or so, you get into the plagues and you kind of fall apart, right? Because it just gets monotonous or repetitive. And I get it. They get the Ten Commandments. I know most of those. And let's get to the Gospel of John, right? That's how a lot of you might, might be tempted to read. That's how I'm tempted to read a book like Exodus. But the first four chapters, as familiar as they may be, uh, I, I don't think we're as familiar with them as we ought to be. Uh, because these chapters provide for us a roadmap for the rest of the book. Uh, they give us an indication of everything that's to come. They, they, they give us sort of the introduction uh, to, to, to the rest of the book. Um, chapter 1, let's, let's just look there, and we'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 7. Um, it says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right, that may, may sound familiar. Uh, this is echoing, this is where we left off in Genesis. The, the tribes of Israel, uh, literally the, the actual men that those tribes are named after, here they are in Egypt, uh, escaping famine, finding salvation, and, um, and we've gotten to a place where all of them have died. All of those men are dead, and now when we talk about these names, we're not talking about actual men anymore, so much as we're talking about the tribes and the families that have come from their lineage. There are 12 of them, uh, and, and these, these tribes then form the basis of this nation that we call Israel, the Israelites. Uh, verse 7, though, is, is, uh, is really important. It says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Now, what does that remind you of? Anybody? What does that remind you of? Genesis, Yeah? Right, that's, that's, the gen, that's the command that God gave Adam and Eve from the very get-go. Be fruitful and multiply. Right, so already in Exodus, we are getting a reminder of the Lord's initial creation. We're getting reminded about all that the Lord set out to do at the beginning. And it, it helps us to understand what's about to take place. In a lot of ways, Exodus is about the creation of God's people. It's about the creation of this family of God, uh, among whom he will dwell, just as he dwelled in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's just like we're getting a, we're getting a, a look at, at the creation of this family, uh, how they came to be. Um, but let's, let's look as well beyond that and, and consider that the rest of these chapters, the first four, they introduce us not just to this setting, the stage, but they introduce us to the main character, or one of the main characters of this book, who is Moses, all right? And Moses is a major figure looming throughout the entire Old Testament, isn't he? 
I mean, much of the, I mean, the first five books of the Old Testament, he's the writer. Uh, but, but not only that, the rest of the Old Testament is always looking back and reminded of Moses. Um, not just the law that he put forward, that the Lord used him to, to help codify, right? Not just that, uh, but the example that Moses sets. And, and not just his example morally, but, but the truth is that Moses is, is a, he's like a prototype, if you will. Moses is this man that God chooses, he sets aside for himself as this model for a lot of the roles that Israelites would come to know in the future. In particular, the role of prophet. Moses becomes the prototypical prophet of Israel. Um, and, and, and so Moses is a really important figure. And it should come as no surprise to us that Moses is also, in a lot of ways, a, um, he's a representative of Israel itself. And these first four chapters uh, serve to show us how Moses' life actually is a, it's like a foreshadowing of the life of Israel, the people. It, it, just hear me out. Moses, let's think about his life, and this is all in the first four chapters here. If you read through it, you'll see each of these things very clearly. Moses is born as a slave in Egypt. His, his mother gives birth to him uh, through a series of events. She has to get rid of him, get him out of her house to save his life. But, but Moses is born as a slave in Egypt. He is brought up in Pharaoh's home but very quickly becomes Pharaoh's enemy. After that, he, um, um, well, actually, even before he is raised in Pharaoh's home, even just three months after he's born, he's Pharaoh's enemy. Uh, and, and not only that, in order to be saved, in order to be rescued from the wrath of Pharaoh to destroy all the, the sons of Israel, he is rescued through water. His mother puts him in a basket, sets him down in the river, and he, he is saved. Right? He, he's found, though, by Pharaoh's daughter, who then raises him. And, and when he is old enough and, and, and sufficiently identifies, I guess, with the Israelites and not the Egyptians anymore, he, he actually kills two Egyptians. And for fear of punishment, because Pharaoh is setting out to kill him specifically now, he flees. He flees Egypt to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And he flees to Midian. And there at Midian, he meets with God on a mountain. The mountain is described in, that, in, in these early chapters as Mount Horeb. But it, it is also, it's the same exact place as Mount Sinai, which is important. And we'll talk about that. There at Sinai, the Lord reveals himself to Moses. And he shows Moses all that he is commanded to do to ensure the faithfulness and the rescue and redemption of God's people. Uh, Moses, we find out, is not an, he's not a perfect candidate for this job. Even from the minute he hears from the Lord, he's already hemming and hawing about how he shouldn't be there. Uh, and, and in the end, despite Moses' weakness and frailty, the Lord's faithfulness shines through. And the Lord and in his initiative uh, uh, empowers Moses to do what he's called him to do. That's the story of Israel. I, ho I hope you're seeing that. I hope you're hearing echoes of that. 
Um, That is Israel's story. And so here in the first four chapters, we have already gotten, it's like the overture at the beginning of some sort of Broadway show. You're hearing all the sounds and all the songs and everything at once. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Allie. Uh, All, uh, everything, Abby, all at once. And and it's meant to remind us then later on the fuller picture as it's developed. This is going on with Moses' life. So Moses is then the, the prototypical Israelite. Uh, and, and, and these first four chapters then help us to see what God would do for the Israelites through, based on what he is doing and what he will do through Moses. Um, so if, this, if these first four chapters then set the pattern of what we can expect for this book, uh, it sets the pattern then of what we can expect for Israel, and it sets the pattern of what we can expect in the Christian life as well. And, and that pattern starts with the faithfulness of God, All right? starts with the faithfulness of God. Um, you, you see this already in, uh, in verse 7 of chapter 1. The people of Israel, right, they're fruitful and multiplying. Uh, this harkens back to the Lord's initial command that they be fruitful and multiply. But it reminds us uh, of, of a few things. That the Lord has been faithful to these people to, to hold them to himself throughout all of this. We have Israelites who are actually fulfilling this, this original command in, in a foreign land. In the house of slavery, the Lord has shown himself faithful to them. But he's shown himself faithful in more ways than that because they are, they are growing, they're abounding, they are multiplying. And this was the Lord's promise already uh, to, to, to Abraham. Uh, throughout these first four chapters, the Lord refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says it again and again and again. And when he tells Moses to talk to the elders of Israel, or when he tells Moses to talk to Pharaoh, when he tells Moses to talk to anybody and tell them who sent him, he's always saying, make sure you let them know that I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have sent you. The Lord's faithfulness is what directs this whole thing, uh, starting with his promises already made uh, to, to the fathers of, of Israel. The most, the most probably important passage, though, in these first four chapters comes in chapter 2. And if you turn there, if you look at the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 23, we're going to be skipping all around, so this may not be your cup of tea, but I'm telling you, if you read this later on for yourself, it'll be helpful. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 23, at this point, the Israelites, uh, they're, they're, we, we know that they are in slavery, that they're in bondage. Uh, but not only that, Moses, he has grown up, he's killed his Egyptians, and he's hitting the road, he's getting out of here. And here, tucked into the middle of this, is this just, I mean, it seems bizarre because it just comes out of nowhere statement. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And if you didn't get it already, verse 25 is the real clincher here, God saw the people of Israel, and if that's not enough, there's a little M-dash there. And it says, and God knew. God saw and God knew 
the state of his people. He saw their suffering. He knew their oppression. Not vaguely. No, he heard their cries. The Lord was not unaware. Um, because the Lord is faithful to his people. We could, we could stop there. That's what this whole book is about. That's what the whole Bible is about. So the Lord is faithful. He loves his people. He cares, de- he cares deeply for them. Um, but he doesn't just love them and care for them and wish he could do something. The Lord actually makes a plan, and he reveals this plan to Moses in chapter 3. Uh, right after Moses sees this incredibly burning bush that does not disappear, it does not burn up, it just stays burning. Uh, the bush speaks to him. Out of the bush, Moses hears a voice, and, and this is the Lord, and he communicates to Moses, and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, this is verse 7, who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, The Lord did, I will be with you. I will be faithful. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, you go, you go there, you will come back here. We'll, we'll talk again, and you'll know that everything that I'm saying right now came true. You just do it. Just do it. I'll bring you back here. Because the Lord is faithful. He has a plan. And in his sovereignty, his providence, he can bring that uh, plan to pass. He can fulfill all that he is about to to say to him. Uh, The Lord has always had a plan to rescue his people. Uh, If you forgot, Genesis 15, let's turn there. uh, The Lord is talking to Abraham. Genesis 15, starting in verse 13, and he establishes his covenant with Abraham. Um, and, and he says this. He says to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord even echoes some of this language. We're not going to get there, but later on in in this passage, as he's talking to Moses, he makes it very clear that one of his promises is that the Israelites will leave Egypt with the jewelry of all the rich, wealthy Egyptian women. That is how sure he is that he is going to do all of this. They're going to leave with, with loot, unbelievably. The Lord has, has already shown Abraham this, this promise, and he's, he's going to bring it to pass. God's provision of, um, of this plan is, is not alone. He also provides Moses with signs and wonders to confirm this plan to scare Pharaoh 
Uh, chapter 4, the first 17 verses, uh, Moses is, is arguing with the Lord about whether or not he'll be seen as legitimate. And God explains to him, well, if you take this staff and you throw it to the ground, it'll turn into a snake. That'll scare him, right? And if you, if you, do, if you put your hand in your pocket and you pull it out, it'll be all leprous. And you put it back in the pocket and pull it back out, it'll be back to the way it was again. It'll be healed. That, that, that'll probably do it. And Moses just keeps just keeps arguing with the Lord, uh, but every step of the way, the Lord is so gracious and kind and faithful to his people and to Moses that he just provides another way uh, for, for this all to, to get going, for all of this to happen. Uh, ultimately, the Lord even tells Moses, I'll send your brother. Your brother can be your mouth. If you're so afraid to talk and you're afraid that you don't speak well, like your brother, Aaron, he'll do it for you. There is no way you're getting out of this because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make this happen. The bottom line in all of this is that God is faithful to his people. This is, this, is, this is one critical element of Israel's exodus and of their, uh, of their life as a nation, is that the Lord would be faithful to them. But it's not just that. It's not, I hesitate to say it's not enough that the Lord would be faithful. That is more than enough. No, the Lord also requires that his people be faithful to him. And, and as much as the first four chapters talk about the Lord's faithfulness and his, his, his hearing and concern for his people, it's just as repetitive that the people of Israel be faithful to God and that they actually are faithful to the Lord. Uh, from the very beginning, in chapter 1, we see examples of some model Israelites, and they're, they're not, it's not Moses, it's not Aaron, it's not any of these people that we'll see, uh, it, it, it's these two midwives uh, who, who we see first of all showing what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord. If you turn to verse 15 of chapter 1, the king of Egypt, notice that he is not named. The king of Egypt never gets a name. Pharaoh's not a name, it's a title. He never gets a name, which I think is fascinating. And especially in this story, it's important. He said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. These two ladies, they get named. They, they make it into the book. The king of Egypt does not. We'll see why. When, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives, that's prophetic, um, called the midwives and, and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh thought he could convince these Israelite women to be their own undoing that he could convince them, here they are in a land of oppression, far away from the land of their people. They're not going to any promised land. Things look pretty dim. Uh, there, there's just no hope for you. Where is your God? 
You could imagine all these thoughts running through, through their minds. And Pharaoh wants them to, to eliminate the, the boys from, from among the Israelites. This population's getting out of control. They could easily have gone with it. But instead, they choose to be faithful to God. Right? They feared the Lord and not the king of Egypt. And in their faithfulness to the Lord, Israel is saved. Um, and, and they find blessing right, from, from God. It's not just the midwives. Um, Moses himself, he shows us a little bit of what it looks like to be faithful to God. Now, we get a really good glimpse of Moses. We look into all of the cracks and crevices of his life. So we know he's got some dark places. Uh, but but very, from the very get-go in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, 5, and 6, when the Lord comes to Moses and speaks to him through the bush, uh, when the Lord saw uh, that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Here I am. Um, that, just that phrase alone, we see throughout the Old Testament, and it, it is always spoken by someone who is listening to the Lord and submits himself to him. Uh, virtually every, every one of the prophets says this. Every leader of God says this. When, when the Lord calls out Samuel uh, to be his, his prophet, his priest for Israel, uh, Samuel is just a boy, and he's in the temple, and the Lord speaks to him, and Samuel says, here I am. This is what the servant of God says, in other words. Uh, it's a very, very key phrase. Every time you see it, you know somebody is about to do something that the Lord is, is asking him. Um, Moses shows faithfulness. Moses' wife, Zipporah, she, show, she shows faithfulness in chapter 4, 24 through 26, uh, at a lodging place. So, so Moses has fled to Midian at this point, uh, escaping from Egypt. There he finds himself a woman. And he marries her. They have children. And, and about this time, the Lord calls Moses to return to Egypt to, to get this rescue mission underway. And on the way there, on the way to Egypt, for Moses to take charge and lead the Israelites and rise up and get out of there, the leader of the Israelites, he, he forgets some very critical elements of what it means to follow the Lord as an Israelite, namely to circumcise his own son. He hasn't done it. He's completely failed to uphold the covenant that God established with Abraham. The guy who's supposed to lead Israel in faithfulness to God, he's totally forgotten the key, like a key step one of how to do this. But his wife hasn't. His wife, who by the way, is not an Israelite, but a Midianite. Um, she she knows how to be faithful to the Lord. She knows what is going on here. She knows what's at stake. In the midst of this, the Lord at a lodging place, they're at this hotel on the way back to Egypt, and the Lord meets Moses there and sought to put him to death, right? Because he's not upholding the covenant. This guy's not fit for the job. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, the Lord, let him, Moses, alone. Um, Zipporah is faithful to the Lord. Right? If not for Zipporah, this whole thing would have fallen apart pretty quickly uh, as Moses is vaporized right then and there. But because of the faithfulness of this woman, um, the, the, the salvation of Israel can happen. Um, 
And, and not only her faithfulness, but the faithfulness of, of the rest of the Israelites. And at the end of chapter 4, in verse 31, Moses, he's been so worried about his reception among the people of God. When he finally arrives and explains to them the plan that God has, the people, verse 31, believed. It's pretty stark. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The faithfulness of Israel is a, is a critical element in the salvation of God's people. Right? The exodus, this escape from, from slavery, and not only that, but, but dwelling in the promised land, making it there and staying there, they hinge, these things hinge on two things, the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God's people. Those two things. Uh, what is so compelling, though, about this story is that these two things converge in one man, in one person. There is one person who represents both the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God's people, and that person is Moses. Moses is where God's faithfulness and the people of Israel's faithfulness meet up. It's where they cross and that's, that's significant. Because Moses is, not just in these chapters, but I mean, th- throughout the Old Testament, Moses is consistently uh, a, a reminder of Jesus. He's what we call a type. A type. Um, a, a type in the Old Testament, a type in literature in general, is somebody who is meant to reflect or point ahead towards something greater, something bigger and better, something more full. Um, the 2.0 of whatever this beta test is. So in, in, in this case, Moses is the type, but we, we know that Jesus, he is the anti-type. He's the fulfillment of this. Uh, Moses is pointing us towards someone greater. But let's talk then how Moses points us to Christ. Moses is God's chosen servant, right? And in chapter three, verse four, he says, here am I. The, the key statement of a servant of God, I'm here, I'll do whatever, I'm all ears. Moses is, is God's chosen servant. In chapter 4, verse 16, when the Lord reminds Moses of his brother Aaron and how Aaron, it, well, he'll be your mouthpiece since you're afraid of stuttering. God tells Moses, you will be like God to Aaron. And the way that the Lord, the way he interacts with his prophets, you will be like that to Aaron. It's a key reminder, right, of the prominence of Moses and the people of Israel. He is the voice of God. He's he's the reminder of God's law to God's people. The Lord gives Moses signs and wonders. We've talked about that in chapter 4. He gives him all these abilities and ways to show and validate his testimony. Um, Jesus, right, he, he does all of these things. He fulfills all of these things. Jesus is God's chosen servant. He is, he is not just like God to the people of God. He is God to the people of God. Jesus, his whole ministry is defined by these signs and wonders that he does. Um, but I think the, maybe the most important way that Jesus is like Moses is that Jesus reveals who God is. 
we haven't talked about this yet, but, but when the Lord reveals himself to Moses, he doesn't just reveal himself, he reveals his name. Not just, I am God. That's not what the Lord says. He actually reveals his name. He, he says, I am who I am. If you, uh, if you look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Lord reveals his name to Moses and, and calls Moses likewise to reveal who the Lord is, the essence of who God is to the people of God. The Lord isn't contingent. His name is I am. It's not based on anything. It's not relative to what he does or, or his characteristics. He's not I'm the God of fertility or I'm the God of the harvest. That's not who he is. He simply is. Right? The Egyptian gods and deities that, that, that they worship, they, they were all the God of something. But, but the God of Israel, is he, his name is I am. So, so through Moses, Israel gets to know who their God truly is. It's as if they're on a first-name basis with the creator of the universe. And, and we know that Jesus doesn't just reveal to us who God is. He reveals himself and in doing so shows us who God is because he's God in the flesh. But how is Moses different? Moses, he's pointing to Jesus, but he's not. There's a reason we need Jesus right? Jesus is Moses 2.0, if you want to think about it that way. Maybe infinity.0 is probably a better way to think about it. So then there are ways that Moses doesn't quite live up to it, and, and, and how? How does he not live up to it? Well, Moses is, um, he's got some troubled past. Uh, he's got a troubled past. He, he murders two Egyptians, for starters. Uh, that's, not, that's not necessarily uh, how, how Christ goes about it. Uh, but but he also angers God with his excuses and with his unbelief. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, he argues with the Lord. And at one point, the, the, the text says, the Lord became angry with him. Whew, that is not where you want to be, right? Um, Moses finds himself in that position, but Jesus never does, does he? Jesus never angers the Lord. He never diverges from the plan. He never questions the Lord's goodness or faithfulness to him. Um, he, he, is, he is always at the ready uh, to, to obey. Um, when Moses fails to circumcise his son, he, he fails to fulfill the obligations of the law. And, and it's not just then. Moses, he's a fallen person. He fails to obey the obligations of the law like we all do throughout his life. None of us can, can measure up. Moses uh, can't measure up. Um, like the Israelites, Moses' faithfulness to God is imperfect. And as a fallen creature, Moses' representation of God's faithfulness to Israel is only finite. And all of this serves to remind Israel, and it reminds us, 
of our need for one who perfectly mediates between God and man, who perfectly represents both. The, The perfect faithfulness that the Lord calls us to, to fulfill the obligations of this covenant that we have with the Lord, um, but, but also to perfectly show us who the Lord is and his faithfulness to us. Moses can't do that. We need someone better. The Israelites needed someone better. And in Moses, we have a reminder. We have this expectation of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this very thing. Jesus is the Moses to come, who is truer and better than the Moses we read about in Exodus. And the Moses we read about in the Old Testament is a hero, but he is a fallen man. Jesus, on the other hand, is perfect. He is exactly what we need. 1 Timothy 2.5. I think we have it on the screen. 1 Timothy 2.5. It says... There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's him. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, likewise says this, and it compares Jesus to Moses directly. and says, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, his people, his family, his household. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see, even there, we hear echoes of Exodus. Not just in constantly mentioning Moses, but in this element that that our hope is in, is in Christ, is in the faithfulness of God to us. We don't need a servant in the house of God. We need the Son of God himself. But not only that, we, must, we are called to remain faithful in our boasting in him alone as our hope. And so our faithfulness to God and, and God's faithfulness to us, they converge truly, finally, ultimately in one man the mediator that God has appointed for us, who is Jesus. That's what Exodus is all about. Let's pray. Father, we um, we delight. We delight to turn to a text like this, so often just buried uh, in the busyness of, of how we tend to read the Bible. We delight when we can turn here and find 
such a clear echo of the, the greatest news that there is. You have called you have called us out and set us apart as your people, and that is that is built on the foundation of your faithfulness, your initiative to redeem us and rescue us. And it is it is continued and sustained by our our faithfulness to you. But Lord, we, like Moses, confess that we are so often unfaithful, that we, we are often unbelieving, that we, trans, that we, we disobey your, your law. Now, who can rescue us? For the, for the people of God, for so long, Moses was the, the greatest hope that there that there was, and he could not fulfill the law perfectly. The man that you had chosen to represent you before your people and that you had chosen to represent the people before you, he fell short. Which is why we delight when we can read this text, we can read Exodus with a mind that is aware of the promises that you have made and kept in Christ alone. Christ is your faithfulness to us. But not only that, he is our faithfulness to you. Any hope we have of fulfilling the law is is found and fulfilled only in him. And you call us to know him. To have fellowship with you through his name. So Lord, encourage us with this. May we be more bold in our pursuit of you, in our pursuit of holiness, knowing that it is all grounded in the man, Christ Jesus. May we be bold knowing that, that you have sworn yourself to us and that this too is found, perfectly shown in the man of Christ Jesus. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have always had this plan in mind. Christ was not plan B. Your gospel is not an afterthought. It has always been the plan. And you reveal that to us again and again in the pages of your word, especially in the Old Testament. That we have always been saved through Christ alone. Through our dependence on the mediator between you and us. Be with us the rest of this week. Help us to bear this in mind. And to follow you wholeheartedly. And we ask it in Jesus' name alone. Amen.